0: Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Great to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, and you've joined us for a good one. This is our year-end podcast, some of the best interviews of 2021. And they represent a cross-section of guests from across North America, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Our guests on today's episode include clips from interviews with Anne Graham, CEO of the National Transport Authority of Ireland, Ahmed Hashem Barosian. CEO of the Roads and Transport Authority of Dubai. Leslie Richards, CEO of the Southeast Pennsylvania Transportation Authority in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Nat Ford, CEO of the Jacksonville Transit Authority in Florida. And Jeremy Yap, Deputy Chief Executive, Public Transport Policy and Planning, the Land Transport Authority in Singapore and Chair of the UITP Organizing Authorities Division. I think you'll enjoy all five of these clips as they do bring you a good cross-section of some of the best interviews we've had in 2021 that received real responses from your audience. And thank you for staying with us. We now are in our fifth year. Hopefully, you can uh, visit us on our website, transitunplug.com, to see all that we have to offer now with social media and our brand new television show coming up your way with the Transit Unplugged TV coming on YouTube from Las Vegas. Enjoy today's episode of Transit Unplugged.
1: We contract and we provide, we're responsible for the provision of subsidised public transport services. So that's where the state is paying a subsidy for the provision of services and they would include uh, rail services. So the rail network uh, throughout the island, all our bus services um, and we have light rail services in in Dublin only. So so all those are are, are, uh, procured uh, by ourselves and we're in contract with those operators. A lot of these services, um, bus services and the rail, the heavy rail services, are provided by a state-owned company. So um, still would provide the majority of the services in in Ireland. There are commercially operated services as well that we license. So their services and their bus services... um, um, in the main or uh, in, in complete um, their bus services and they're operated without a uh, state subsidy. So they represent about 10% of public transport journeys across the state. So we have a combination of fully licensed commercial services with no state subsidy. And then we step in and provide services where there's an, an obligation, there's an economic need, and a social need to provide services but they're not uh, financially uh, sustainable so and we provide subsidy for those. We've also been working to introduce some competition into the subsidized market because we, when we started off it was fully provided by the state operators and so now we've been we've introduced some competition into that market so those are fully tendered on an open on the open market and we've now got around 10 to 15% of our bus services are provided by um, privately owned commercial companies um, under contract to ourselves. Demand response is primarily on our rural transport services and it started off our rural transport as a very much community-led transport provision. So it was local community groups getting together to seek funding to provide demand responsive service, primarily serving uh, those communities, very isolated communities, particularly older people, and to bring them and connect them back into their local communities. So that's primarily where our Demand Responsive Services started. So they've been operating for over 10 years now, and we just brought them into the whole public transport family. And so they form a very important part of our, our transport family. And we are trying to ensure that once they could link somebody that's living in a very isolated rural area into a local town and they can then transfer it to another service, which brings them to a larger town or to a city. So that's where we call our rural transport service local link because it's very important to connect sure. local
0: people to their local centers. So. so tell me about ridership and that kind of stuff pre-COVID, now that we're in COVID. How has that impacted you? Those kind of things. Yeah. So we
1: have, we had in 2019, a very successful year. So we grew our public transport journeys by uh, 9%, which is quite incredible in one year. Yeah. Yeah. So now we did invest in additional services and that's what we're continuing to do is identify where there are gaps in our services and to increase those services. But yeah, 9% growth was phenomenal. And it brought us up to around 290 million journeys per year, and um, which was incredible. But naturally, the the impact of COVID has been quite very significant, as it has been across across the world. And um, so, what we've seen by year end of 2020 are compared to 2019, we saw a reduction of 50% in our public transport journeys. Yeah, lots going on. So, there's a the previous government produced a national development plan um, of the infrastructure development for the next 10 years. And for the first time in in any national development plan in Ireland, we saw more money being set aside for the development of public transport versus the roads infrastructure. So in our previous earlier years, we invested as a country, we invested a lot in, in our motorway infrastructure, our roads infrastructure, which The bus system obviously benefits from and lots of people benefit from. But now there's much more focus on investment in sustainable transport. So about 8.6 billion euros was set aside for uh, sustainable transport infrastructure. So we've got three big programs that form part of that. The first one is Metrolink, which is a metro, underground metro. Uh, about 19 kilometres of metro, which will connect Swords, which is a town in the north of Dublin City, um, to our airport and into the city centre. And at the moment, we've gone through quite a significant amount of public consultation. It's been actually delivered by a sister agency, which is Transport Infrastructure Ireland, and they work on light rail infrastructure and motorway roads, national roads infrastructure. So again, we set the strategy. We're the funders. Um, they'll do the the day-to-day kind of delivery of that with us overseeing it and obviously working very closely with us. So that at the moment is uh, we're just completing the design. We're finalizing the business case, which has to go to government because we have to present to government. They have to see that there is a business case for this, get approval for us to then take it into the planning uh, stage. So we have a statutory planning framework that we have to go through as well. And that's where things can sometimes get tricky, as you can imagine, because the public have a right to object to what we're planning to do. And we, this will go through an oral hearing and the process involved in that. And particularly when there's compulsory person as a property you have to go through this process in ireland and um, before you're in a position to do that so so that's a big that's will be considered a, meg, a mega project from ireland's perspective anyway and it'll be the first underground metro awesome. and then we've another um program to continue to electrify our rail line our heavy rail system our commuter rail system in dublin we call that the dart plus program and dart is the name we give to our electric our current electric um, system, which is about 50 kilometres of electric railway line. And we want to extend that by another 100 kilometres of electric railway line. So it's really electrifying the existing line uh, so that it can take um, trains. The first kind of phase of that is actually purchase of fleet. So we we decided uh, with our partners, Darren, who are our operator, will deliver this infrastructure as well to procure battery, electric and electric fleet so what we wanted to do was provide the capacity as early as possible in the program without necessarily having the overhead lines to operate the electric fleet. So that's why we're going for battery electric in the initial phases so that we can actually uh, increase the, the capacity of the system, because we were definitely constrained in terms of the numbers of people that we that we could carry versus the demand. We hope to place an order, or Irish Rail hopes to place an order um, in the next in this quarter, or maybe the, certainly early twenty twenty one, for um, a significant amount of of rail fleet, um, and then we'll move. They will move to to bring through the planning process again all the electrification and all the infrastructure infrastructure works the um, associated with the electrification, and then finally on the bus system because because of the size of of our country and even our cities and how dispersed our population is, even within the city, we don't have very dense city environments. So it means the bus is the workhorse for for our public transport system and always will be, even in Dublin. So uh, it'll still carry the the, the vast majority of our public transport journeys. So we we decided to kind of develop a programme called Bus Connects, which is really about looking at every aspect of the bus system, and improving it so we looked at the network is the network fit for purpose for the news for the city and the way the city's developed and the way people are changing in terms of their journeys and we engaged actually uh, jared walker who you you may know he came okay. to work with us on our um network and to just relook at our 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 network um fresh and the other key Uh, part of the of the program is actually improving the bus priority on our city streets because at the moment the bus shares its journey uh, with car traffic for about 70 percent of its journey so naturally enough as the city gets congested the, the bus gets held up and the journey times aren't as efficient as they could be so we've undertaken a very significant public consultation on a series of interventions across all the radial routes into the city where we want to provide a full bus priority in each direction and a segregated cycle lane in each direction and as well as space for car as well and and walk and walking as well so given that in in Dublin our our streets aren't that why This has meant that we are, for the first time, looking at compulsory purchasing property in order to provide for the bus system or the cycling system.
0: But it's exciting to see the investment from the federal level yes. here in the U.S. and a lot of places in Canada and others. Public transportation operating dollars have largely been a local, a state and local yeah. responsibility. But I think federal yeah. governments around the world are realizing, like yours has, that we have to invest in what we want our future to look like. We yeah. can't just let things happen we have no. to take intentional action and to if we want a cleaner, better environment and better mobility for our people, I think you're you're setting an example for the rest of the world, Anne. <laughs> oh, I'm delighted to hear that. Delighted.
1: <laughs> well, we're very excited about it. We we believe that it also makes financial sense and economic sense as well, because the cost of congestion, of car congestion, if it's let let you know increase year on year, is very significant. Like we estimated that if we did nothing that the cost just in Dublin will be 2 billion euros per year of, of congestion. Wasted productivity kind of yeah, thing. Wasted time, yeah, journey times, all that. So, so there's huge economic benefits, particularly in the bus system, because the cost of the infrastructure is quite low. It's really a roads project. It's really about... Re, you know, realigning your streets. Basically, it's not right. it's not huge more investment compared to a light rail or heavy rail system. So you can you can provide a lot by just with relatively small low levels of investment.
2: And innovation is a very important part of of, of the city. It's always been about innovation. It's always been about leadership that's looking forward, has the foresight to think beyond what normal people, if you like, can, can see. And really, it's about pushing the limits, pushing the boundaries in everything we do, whether it's in the buildings that we build, in the, the way that we develop our city, and even the transport systems that we provide. So, for example, we we operate currently the longest driverless metro system in the whole world. Our metro stations, unlike what, what is normally you see around you know, Europe, the Far East, et cetera, are, are built more like five-star hotels, if you like, for very fancy transport and mobility hubs that really encourage people to um, use the different mobility services. I think when when we were established as the RTA, we just completed about 15 years of being in, in business, the Roads and Transport Authority. When we started off, only 6% of trips in Dubai were conducted through public transport, whereas the majority of trips were done through private vehicles. In 15 years, that 6% has gone up to about 17 to 18%. It's still quite, I mean, when you compare us to some other cities where public transport is, is if you like, competing uh, very heavily with, with uh, private cars, it still looks low. But if you look at 6% to 17, 18% in, in 15 years, in a city where the road infrastructure is extremely, is extremely strong, we have actually been awarded uh, the best road infrastructure worldwide four years in a row. So really the city is, is very much a car-oriented city. So we are competing against a very... <laughs> Difficult opponent, if you like, in terms of private cars. We have been focusing very much on shared mobility solutions and increasing the different mobility options people have in Dubai. I think our our philosophy is the more options you provide for people, the more chance you have of people, if you like, leaving their cars. Maybe they still don't own cars, but they're going to do less trips with those cars. So they're they're going to reconsider every time they make a trip to say, why would I take out my car? Uh, Why don't I use RTA's mobility services? There are so many options available. What this pandemic has also, I think, opened everybody's eyes towards is to say, I think these rigid mobility solutions like metro systems and buses, normal buses, if you like, are very uh, expensive to operate. The ridership patterns are shifting all the time and it's very difficult to keep up with that. So I think a good alternative for that, and we've realized that in Dubai, is that on-demand services is going to be the next big thing. We obviously have e-hailing services for both limo and taxi services in Dubai. But we feel that a bus on demand service is also the next thing that's going to allow us to operate buses in a more personalized way for customers. So um, fine tuning, if you like, the service to the demand shifts, to demand patterns of customers. At the same time, for us as an operator, it's a lot more efficient because you have a lot less dead mileage, a lot less fuel consumption because you're actually understanding what the demand patterns are and responding to it in a more dynamic way. So that's been a, a new addition. We've also in the last year or so introduced a bike sharing service in the city with, with a partner Karim. Karim of course is the, is the is the biggest e-hail in the Middle East started in Dubai as a startup. So we've introduced with Karim a bike sharing service in Dubai which is covering many parts of the city. We continue to expand our bus sorry our our bike dedicated bike lanes around the city to make it a very safe and affordable service uh, for citizens. And only very recently and I when I say very recently I mean about 2 weeks ago We started um, a scooter, shared scooter service as well in the city. So we now have five partners. It's a one-year pilot. Like many cities around the world, we are very excited about the potential of scooters. But we're also a little bit worried about the safety aspect. I think um, a lot of cities in the U.S. as well as Europe have, have experimented with scooters. Some have been more successful than others. So we've looked at the different models, the different lessons learned by different cities. And we felt the best way to go with scooters is to... To start a trial in five different areas in the city with five different operators, a one-year trial for us and the operators to learn, and then after one year, hopefully, we'll formalize it across the different parts of the city. So this is the approach we've taken. So I think our philosophy is there's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to mobility solution. Not every solution works for every city in the world. Some solutions work everywhere, but they need to have they need to be tweaked. I think different with different um, model, different business model, different partnerships in order to accommodate the obvious if you like distinctions that are you know that are there always from one city to another so the tram has been one of the newest additions to the mobility landscape in dubai it's only about um, 6 years old i believe it's a good complement to the metro so it links to the metro system you can hop off the metro and hop onto a tram very seamlessly of course in dubai we also when we introduced the dubai metro we also introduced a unified ticketing system in the city as well. So it's called NOL, N-O-L, and it's very easy to pronounce uh, in both Arabic and English. But the objective of NOL is really seamless transportation. So with that card, you can actually then hop on and hop off to any transport mode. You can hop on to the metro, hop off and hop on to a bus or to the tram and any other mode of transport as well. It's also even all of our new mobility solutions, we're insisting always that the ticketing system of Dubai is always Allows you to use any mobility system, whether it's existing or a new mobility system in the city. We complement that also with a with an app that uh, is our journey planner for the city as well. So again, any new mobility mode in Dubai, we insist that it always have to be has to be integrated into the journey planning app in the city. So we're trying to really, as we expand our mobility services from metro to tram to buses to bus on demand to soft mobility solutions, it always needs to be seamless. It always needs to be integrated. And hopefully we make it as easy as possible for people to plan their journey using all of the different mobility services available. It's not always easy because you have different partners, different operators. They normally come with their own apps, with their own offerings. But we always insist that it needs to be as seamless as possible for the customer. I think with diversity, sometimes comes complexity as well. And that's a challenge that we always have. We want to be diverse. We want to provide as many options as possible. But we don't want to confuse customers. We don't want to make it difficult. We don't want the customer to have 20 apps on their phone in order for them to be able to move around the city.
0: Tell me about how you integrate with taxi cabs, because I understand they're really part of your whole solution, right?
2: Sure. Yeah, well, we actually have the way we operate taxis in Dubai. It's like a franchise service, if you like. So we have seven franchisees, taxi operators, who are basically privately owned, most of them. And they operate under so we're a regulator, if you like, rather than an, an operator. Um, however, I think the model that we deploy in Dubai, we especially with the RTA, most of our services now we don't operate anymore. We still operate public transport buses, but I think post Expo we're hoping to move away from from operating and outsource that as well. The metro is outsourced, the buses are franchised, etc. So we're really moving away from operation and more into a role of of a regulator, organizer responsible for quality assurance of the service. Now, in some cities around the world, and I've seen this, I don't really like this model. The the regulators normally saying, listen, taxis are operated by private companies. It's their business. They manage the service. We're really not that involved. For us in Dubai, it's a little bit different. We always want to make sure that we have control of the quality of the service. So it's very important that even if we're not operating a service, we don't take shrug, if you like, shirk away from the responsibility that the, service is still our, the quality of the service is still our responsibility, even if we don't operate it ourselves. Now, this means that we have about, as I said, seven franchises uh, that operate taxis. We have 11,000 taxis, 23,000 taxi drivers in the city. And if we're not going to depend on technology and cutting-edge technology to manage the quality of the service, it's going to be impossible. Since you mentioned Matthew, I think Matthew, Matthew is a little bit sick and tired of, 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 of having meetings with me when I'm always pushing him say listen what's next technology innovation what's coming next in the taxi field we need to improve we need to have better control over the taxi service we need to even though we're not in the taxi in the cab where the driver and the passenger are there together we need to know what's happening there we need our cameras to be telling us we need ai to be basically telling us what's 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 being done properly what's what's going wrong in taxis for us to be able to take action so the technology that Trapeze deploys in taxis is very advanced. We, we believe it's also one of the uh, most advanced uh, systems worldwide. We have telematic devices in all our taxis. We have cameras in taxis, which allow us to always be aware of what's going on with any taxi trip. There are certain, if you like, missed or bad practices that taxi drivers deploy anywhere in the world, not just in, in Dubai. We like to use the technology technology. To, to, to manage things like black trips, to manage things like disputes between the customers and the taxi drivers. And I think the fact that also we, we have introduced in the last couple of years, also through a partnership with, with the private sector, we've introduced e-hailing to taxis in Dubai. I think that has helped the taxi industry as well because in most cities around the world, when e-hailers like Uber came in, it affected the business of taxis. It really you know, brought down the revenues. It, 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 it brought unwanted competition for cities, it was great because for customers, they had choice, but the taxi industry really suffered in many cities around the world. For us, I think we embraced e-hailing and we allowed the, the Ubers uh, and Kareem's to, to provide the e-hailing service in the limo sector. Now, in Dubai, the limo sector means, if you like, a premium taxi service or an upper-class taxi service. And we then introduced with the r and in partnership with the taxi companies, we introduced e-hailing to taxis. And really that helped the taxis compete with the limo, if you like. So it, it actually... Uh, allowed them to flourish uh, rather than having them uh, suffer, suffer through e um, services. So, as I said, we embrace innovation and we welcome innovation and we want people to bring innovative ideas to the city and try it out here. But also because we're fast in decision-making. I think that's a big competitive advantage to our city as well. Um, we, we are able to make quick decisions for changes in regulation, changes in policies that allow us to embrace innovation. Because with innovation, sometimes you have clashes between innovative ideas and what the laws and regulations say. And uh, rather than fight innovative ideas, we actually fight the laws, if you like, and fight the regulations and try to bend and tweak regulations in order for us to be able to bring innovation to our city. So I think that is going to continue. We we are going to see, the world is always going to see new innovative ideas in terms of mobility and shared mobility and stock mobility. And we want Dubai always to be the place for companies to think, listen, let me go and talk to the government in Dubai because I think they will be the first government that will welcome us and allow us to experiment and to try our solutions. So that's one area. I think the other area for us is is autonomous. I think we believe in autonomous mobility. We believe it's going to be the future for several reasons. I think when you talk to any um, of the leading companies worldwide that are working on autonomous mobilities or um, autonomous cars in general and transportation, I think they will tell you that the biggest driver for them is saving lives. And over 90%, of course, 95% of accidents happen because of human error. We lose over a million lives worldwide to road accidents. It's it's sad. And and I think if you talk to any company, they will say that saving lives is their main priority. Now, if you talk to any government also, I'm sure saving lives from road accidents is also a priority. So that's, I think, where the private sector and government come together when it comes to autonomous transport. There are, of course, other, other benefits. I think the The biggest drivers for us, of course, is safety and saving lives. It's also, hopefully, when you take the driver component out of any transportation mode, be it a bus or a taxi, you're actually saving a lot of money because the driver is quite an expensive cost element. And then, hopefully, that saving of money can be passed on to the customer. So, really, it's about making transportation mobility cheaper for people and then becomes more inclusive. And speaking of inclusivity, again, it's about people... Uh, who today have difficulty having access to mobility systems, like people of older age, the elderly, kids, for example. Really, it's opening the door for, for people for mobility to be all-inclusive and to bring everyone into the picture, if you like. So, so these are the drivers.
0: You know, most of our listeners are in the transportation industry and most have aspirations to move up. And so they like um, uh, seeing other career paths. So tell us about your career path, Leslie.
3: Sure. So I think like a lot of people who are in transportation, you know, I fell into the transportation industry, was always interested in working with communities. I was always fascinated by how they how they operated, what made some communities work better than others, Uh, always interested in quality of life issues. And so as an undergrad, I studied urban studies and economics. Uh, I then went on to get a master's in regional planning where uh, I got very interested in environmental issues, particularly water and air issues. I worked for uh, the EPA for a little while in their water division as well as their air quality division. It was there that I got introduced to emissions and uh, some of the air quality work related to transportation. Uh, I then uh, worked for our city planning commission here in Philadelphia for a little bit, the Central Philadelphia Development Corporation. And uh, then I uh, left the workforce for eight years. I was a stay-at-home mom. I have three children. And uh, for eight years... um, I actually worked very hard. I just didn't get paid very well when it comes to money. Got paid in other ways, but uh, sure. not, not when it comes to a salary. Uh, then I re-entered uh, the workforce, uh, working part-time for a while. Worked for an environmental engineering firm. And it just so, uh, as luck would have it, I interviewed uh, with them. Um, and uh, they had just won the largest transportation project in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And that was the I-95 Interchange uh, Turnpike. Uh, connection. And uh, that was the last remaining link of I-95 from Florida to Maine. And it happened to be in Ben Salem Township, Pennsylvania. And so we wanted to build that last interchange, uh, very large project, uh, over $2 billion project. And they needed someone to lead their public involvement and help with uh, acquisition and right away uh, acquisition as well as property acquisition issues. And so I was happy to be back at work and, and jumped in. And it was really that project that showed me how much transportation can add to um, the economic development of a region, um, can hurt or help neighborhoods, uh, can really um, impact um, people at their business levels, at their, at their, you know, the communities they choose to raise their families in. Really enjoyed those conversations and then uh, built up a uh, public involvement department for them there, uh, managed many other projects, worked for a civil engineering firm for a little bit. And I, at the same time, while I was home, uh, as a stay-at-home mom, I got involved with my community and I helped with our first township day. I always say my first transportation project was um, running the pony rides at our township uh, day. And uh, I did pretty well. and. Um, and just really enjoyed being part of the community that way. I, got that, bucked off the horse. Ex- no one, no Everyone was safe. Everyone was safe. All of the, all of the, the, the horse uh, extras were cleaned up properly okay. off of the baseball field that we used. So it was very successful. Lots of smiling young faces in my neighborhood. Uh, but from there, I, I was asked to join uh, our park and rec board. I ended up chairing our board when we did our first. Um, master plan of all the parks, really looking at them as a network. Then uh, I, I joined our planning commission. Uh, and then, to my surprise, was asked if I'd be interested in running for local office, our township supervisor uh, position. And while I had always presented to the supervisors, I really had never had an interest in being on the board of supervisors. Um, after going back and forth for a while, which is pretty typical, I um, you know, I decided to run. And uh, at that time, there's five supervisors at that time, three were running, Uh, we had the chance uh, to make a majority. Um, No surprise, since I served under a Democratic governor, I'm a Democrat. And I live in a majority Republican township. And uh, we thought that if we could take all three seats, you know, we would win uh, the majority for the first time in our township in a very, very long time. So we knocked on a lot of doors. Uh, we spoke to our neighbors, and to our surprise, as well as the townships, we won all three seats. And uh, so that was very exciting. Uh, it good, can, it? Yeah, yeah, it's nice to be in the majority. That's what I have to say. Yeah. And uh, so we did a lot of interesting things uh, with my background. We did a lot of stormwater projects, open space preservation, um, as well as economic development, obviously roads and bridges, and uh, and. As we move forward, we needed to do some uh, farmland preservation. And I went in front of the county board of commissioners and I thought, wow, there's a job where you get to make all of these, you know, important decisions that impact our quality of life. You get paid for it. And it's during the day because the uh, local elected stuff, I'm working part time at the environmental engineering firm. I have the three young kids at home. You know, my husband's been traveling a lot for his work and, uh, you know, you fit it in where you can. And then I thought, uh, well, this this could be an interesting opportunity. So, again, mimicking my township role, uh, lived in a majority at the time, Republican County. This would be the first time that we could take over the uh, the majority. So, you know, my profile was interesting to the county party of what we had done and how we did it. Um, and uh, long story short, we won and we were the first Democratic majority in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania <clears throat> in over 140 years. And so that was very exciting. Uh, What I did not know about politics was that that's kind of a big deal in Pennsylvania, uh, the third largest county, over 800,000 residents. And so when you do things, um, you get the attention that Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and and Montgomery County get. And uh, so drew some attention. I got to go to the White House. um, I also was one of the few women in elected office at that time uh, in the area. And, uh, I met a man, uh, a, a businessman and central PA Tom Wolf uh, at the time. And we started a relationship. He was very supportive of what we were doing. I let him know how we were consolidating departments, how we were moving forward, the things that we own, went back to our core mission of what a County should do, making difficult decisions. Uh, he runs for governor and, and looking, uh, to fill his, um, to fill uh, his support network and his cabinet um, in our conversations. Obviously thrilled uh, that I got to be his uh, secretary of transportation. I, I got to be the first female uh, to fulfill that role as well. And uh, so we got to move forward on a lot of diversity and uh, inclusion initiatives, as well as making sure that we had a transportation system, you know, for the 21st century and move forward how we worked with our communities and, uh, and PennDOT Connects and changed a few things there. Uh, so that was wonderful. I also got to be the first female chair of the Turnpike Commission here uh, in Pennsylvania. And that's where I really got to know the chairman of the SEPTA board, who is a Pennsylvania Turnpike commissioner. We worked through a lot of very difficult issues, contentious issues at the Turnpike, um, financial difficult issues. And uh, I'm always embarrassed to say I didn't see the opportunity, but um, back in uh, April of 2019, after a board meeting, He asked if I'd be interested in coming back uh, to my home, which which is Southeastern Pennsylvania and uh, leading the sixth largest transit agency in the country. And so we started to talk and I realized uh, the opportunities uh, to work with our communities on the ground to really help um, uh, particularly communities of color, disadvantaged neighborhoods, making sure that they had opportunities, making sure that we could get them to opportunities, to jobs, help their quality of life. Um, it really seemed like a, a, a wonderful opportunity for me when I was excited about one that, um, you know, my past experience uh, would be really helpful. And like I said, I was just embarrassed. I didn't see that opportunity ahead of me, but I'm glad that he did, and so here I am.
4: I'll be sitting in your brand new building that really you haven't really had a chance to fully occupy, right? Oh, yes. Uh, in <laughs> fact, we completed construction last year this time, and uh, there was a plan for a major celebration. And unfortunately, the pandemic put that to rest. But we did move forward in May of last year and went forward with opening up the building and opening up the transit operation, but uh, we're still in a posture where half of our employees are working uh, remotely from home and half are working here in the office building socially distanced. Mm-hmm. And, but we're very proud of this facility. It had been on the books for a number of years, the Jacksonville Regional Transportation Center at La Villa. And what we've built here is a true Grand Central Station for uh, Northeast Florida, Across the street, I think you saw where we have connectivity to Greyhound, Megabus, and Red Coach, which operate inner-city services. And then we have our fixed route bus service here, along with the Skyway, which is our automated people mover integrated into the facility. We now operate regional commuter bus services since the last time we spoke. So we're connected to Nassau County, which is the Amelia Island area. We run express bus service to St. John's County, which is the St. Augustine, city of St. Augustine area. And then we also operate all of Clay County services. So we have become more of a regional operator since we last talked. and and a number of micro transit ready ride services we provide in the community. So very proud of, and our bus rapid transit, first close flyer, uh, bus rapid transit network uh, connects to this facility. And we have one final leg of that, that we're building this year, which is the orange line, which will connect from this facility down southwest area of uh, Jacksonville connecting with the Orange Park Mall. Yeah, exactly. So our origins, our DNA is really road and bridge building in our community. And so a number of iconic bridges as well as road were actually built by the Jacksonville Expressway Authority, which was created in 1955. We're a state independent quasi-state authority. And so 1955, the Jacksonville Expressway Authority. In the 1970s, you had a number of private Held bus companies that were going out of business, going bankrupt, and we were asked to step in in the 70s, take responsibility for those bus operations. And so now we are truly multimodal in that we do road and, and bridge building, and we have a number of road projects that are underway right now. And then we operate, I would say, a mid sized public transit agency. So A wide spectrum of transportation um, modes that we oversee, sidewalk building, road building, bike lanes, you name it, we pretty much do all of it along with our parking operations.
0: I think a lot of people know your background, but for those who don't, tell right. us a little about your background, how you ended up here.
4: Uh, yeah, so for those who don't know me, uh, I actually started out my career with New York City Transit as a train operator, a second generation uh, transit person. My father had uh, rose to the ranks of being the chief operating officer for New York Transit. and I sort of followed in his footsteps, became eventually a superintendent in a number of promotions, uh, superintendent in transit operations, then uh, left, went to work for BART for about five years as their uh, one of their assistant chief transportation officers, and then got recruited to uh, MARTA as their senior VP of operations, eventually appointed to uh, chief executive officer in uh, 2000. And then uh, San Francisco MTA came a calling, and I started there in 2006 as their CEO, and then landed here in uh, Jacksonville in December of 2012. And so I've had a chance to work around the country and I'm just so excited about the work that I've been a part of over the years in these different communities. We really took it as an opportunity to look at the JTA and recognize that the, there was going to be a new normal coming out of this pandemic and we decided to take a look inward and really look at the services we currently provide but more importantly what the service we need to provide going into the future. We are as public transportation agencies, we touch so many facets in terms of our community. And so I think sometimes we don't recognize our power, our influence, and our impact. And so today is an example of that as it relates to this COVID-19 pandemic. And we all know, I think in our case, 850 square miles of our service here in the city of Jacksonville, not counting the other counties, but 850 square miles, a combination of rural, suburban, as well as urban. We know on a daily basis there are members of our community that don't have access to education, they don't have access to healthcare opportunities, and also there's issues in terms of job opportunities. And we know that on a daily basis. So when this pandemic occurred, we really looked at how could the JTA, with its assets, its planning, its intellectual acumen, its talent, its facilities, how could we lean in and actually support our community and thereby continue to create the support for the JTA we need for our overall mission, what can we do to help this community to continue to show the JTA's value and worth? And that's where the partnership came up to create these mobile buses that vaccination buses that are set up like uh, mobile doctor's offices. And I wouldn't say it was rather easy. It was somewhat complicated to do that, but it continues to show our value to this community. It's that same mindset that we apply to a lot of the issues that our elected leaders are facing here. They see the JTA not just as a bus operation or just as the operator or builder of road projects, but they see us as part of the problem solving for issues on homelessness, on issues as it relates to uh, poverty in certain communities. We are seen as that beacon. I also would add that when we look at the public transport, we look at the way we are designed as the JTA, we have impacts in terms of economic vitality, sidewalk accessibility bike lane accessibility. We have an impact on pedestrian face fatalities and the safety of bicycle lists. So the list goes on and on and on. I think we are best prepared and situated to be holistic transportation service providers, and we should not limit ourselves and stay in one lane. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with autonomous vehicles. I'll be going yes. out and visiting that later, but uh, you've been one of the leaders there too. Where do you envision the role of autonomous vehicles going over the next five to 10 years? We believe autonomous vehicle technology is a question of when and not if. And I think, as you can see, over the last five years since we started with the concept, there's been a great deal of advancement. You will see our test facility out there at Armsdale, the Armsdale Test and Learn Facility, and you will see how advanced the technology has become. We've tested over seven vehicles to this date since that time frame, and we actually own one vehicle, the Peron Robotics EV Star vehicle, which is a conventional What you would see a power transit type vehicle that has a autonomous vehicle kit actually installed on it. And the reason being is because many of the autonomous vehicles that you currently see, the Ollie 2.0, the Easy Mile, some of these vehicles have not gone through the NHTSA approval process to operate in mixed traffic. So as a plan B, we're going to have a vehicle that is roadworthy, but already automated and kitted out we believe that this technology is uh, again a question not a question of if it's a question of when we need to make the smart decisions at the right time our test and learn facility has afforded us the ability as the jta to actually go back to OEMs and now they're working in partnership with us because our test facility is actually identify what we call the golden 20 which are 20 requirements that we feel is necessary for an autonomous vehicle to operate in a public transit environment. And so you'll hear about that later today when you go to our test facility. And that has advanced the JTA's staff and team to be, I think, uh, on the cutting edge in terms of this technology. Well, uh, you kind of let one out of the bag. We are working on a vertical. Really? Uh, Yeah. So we have meetings set up. We've met with a couple of uh, vertical takeoff companies. When you look at particularly Jacksonville, we have International Airport. You have the world-renowned Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic entertains or takes care of customers from around the globe. Okay. And so Jacksonville is a medical vacation. I don't want to say I know because, what you mean, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. But there, it is a medical destination for people from around the globe. We have a MD Anderson Cancer Center here wow. that opened up a couple of years ago. And so between three major world-class facilities, UF uh, Health uh, at, uh, at Shands is another facility, the ability to land in the airport and then possibly take an air taxi right. to Mayo's campus or to MD Anderson or UF Shands is a is a reality to explore it yeah. Is an opportunity to explore and so we are working in that space with the airport and with a number of av companies because when they're talking about these robo taxis the air taxis yeah. they're actually unmanned in a lot of cases right. so, so we're examining
0: today we're excited to bring you one of the world's leading transit executives jeremy yap jeremy is the deputy chief executive of public transport policy and planning for the Land Transport Authority in Singapore. He's also Chair of the Organizing Authorities Division, UITP and Vice President of the UITP Executive Board. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be on Transit Unplugged. Yes, great to have you with us. This is, uh, this is an honor for me. As you know, uh, we were just both on a, a big UITP webinar last night with almost 600 people from around the world. And I was fascinated. Uh, by what you're doing there in Singapore. I can't wait to dig in today and unpack it all.
5: Just to give you uh, some some sense of the pace of development, we are about 230 kilometers of rail right now, metro. And uh, in about 2030 or thereabouts, we'll be pushing to about 360 kilometers. And that means, Paul, uh, in practical terms, uh, we, we build one kilometer of tunnel every month. And every two months, we pop up an MRT station or a, a metro station somewhere underground uh, on top. And that goes on all the way until 2030. That's the pace of uh, construction that is uh, that we have to undergo in order to develop and expand a more comprehensive network, which is the backbone. Of the transport in Singapore, crucial. So, so just to give you an idea, we have spent over sixty billion recently on the expansion of new lines, on re- renewal, big renewal projects in in signalling, in comms, in uh, uh power and track circuit. All these things that will deliver high reliability in the metro for for our commuters. In fact, I I would, if you allow me to to give a little bit of a post in Singapore and this system, and we have developed. What we call uh, one million, we've surpassed the one million mark as a system in the metro of what we call mean kilometers before failure, meaning oh, wow. um, runs one thousand, you know, 1 million, uh, 1 million, uh, NKBF uh, before you know a, a commuter gets to you know experience failure, and that is the you know how we want to deliver a high quality public transport uh, for our commuters because Singaporeans deserve that. Um, so so we thought you know this is something that we we'll put resources behind and we manage it properly so that we can keep um, you know that reliability very high. just like if you turn on the tap you expect water to flow in the same right. way transport is like that you know if you if you view reliability in those terms then as good as turning on a tap it flows it doesn't you know stop suddenly in the middle of nowhere. so that's what we aspire to do.
0: That's great. Let's walk through the modes now that you operate there, you know, the rail, the bus, and kind of give us a little detail about each one. How many vehicles, what your passengers are, you know, kind of walk us through each of the modes and describe them to us.
5: Okay, so um, the rail is the backbone I already described. It's about 230 kilometers. So we carry about quite close to about 3.4 million uh, trips each day before COVID. Right. Uh, and then the bus side of the house carries okay. about 3.6 million. Yeah. yeah
0: let me ask you to go even a little bit uh, in more depth, what we call inside huh. baseball here in America. Huh. Uh, so uh, what type of rail are we talking about here? Is this, uh, you know, diesel? Is it electric? Is it third rail? Is it is it catenary wire? Kind yeah. of walk us through.
5: We have a mix. We have uh, most of our rail are underground, except for the first line. Parts of it is elevated, but uh, large parts of it is also underground. We have a policy to ground our metro systems. Uh or at least the, the ones with larger vehicles, uh four-car, six-car trains, we call them. Eh? Okay. So these are these are all electric runs. They they are all, in fact, many of them are driverless. Eh? Uh so so we 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 already have you know autonomous thinking very early in our history. So driverless trains already. Uh so we have about six, seven lines now already going. We're pushing beyond, as I've said, expanding the rail network. Uh very aggressively, yeah. And on the bus side of the house, we have about fourteen packages, right? Yeah. So we 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 have tendered about four or five packages. Um, you know, from the incumbents uh, that we had, two original bus companies were operating here, but now go ahead. You're familiar with go ahead. Yeah. They operate uh, packages here as well as Tower Transit, right? Uh, you know, tower, yeah. uh, they they are in town as well. So so we have four uh, very involved, very capable bus operators and so we have 14 packages and you know uh, go uh, tower transit operates two of them go ahead operates one and between the two uh, original incumbents there's a division and, and uh, 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 sbst one of the larger incumbents operates about nine packages so so it's a contestable market and that one is a really what we call gross cost market uh, the metro operates on what we call net cost huh? a risk uh, uh, a risk sharing uh, kind of arrangement the interesting thing, Paul, uh, is that uh, we've seen some levelling of the peak. And that is pleasing to us because uh, it does mean that I don't have to chase after the peak and inject services just to meet the peak of the peaks, which is, uh, uh, you know, is 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 a very strain on resources, as you would know. You know, and and, uh, and so that levelling is something that we've taken advantage of. It's something that we, you know, uh, never waste a good crisis, right, Paul? So as Winston okay. Churchill said, uh, make sure that when you know COVID serves it up to you, you make sure that you shape it in the way that you like it. So when we saw the peak leveling, uh, the the off peak rose, and so you know we we saw it uh, arise a couple of percentage points, It was pleasing to see. So that even as the ridership recovers, it didn't recover in the shape in the sh- same form. It recovered in a in a more distributed manner, and that was pleasing, and that's something that we seek to entrench and shape. Because something that is positive, you want to shape it actively rather than just let it evolve.
0: Yes, that's happening all over the world, as you know, Jeremy. Is that transit agencies are taking this this crisis moment as an opportunity to reevaluate and um, reevaluate what services they're offering, focus on what are our what is our core mission? Is our core mission just to basically be a commuter service? You know, to run people in and out of the city at the AM and PM peak. Or is it to provide the mobility needs of everyone all day long? And I think a lot of folks are realizing it really is about um, improving the customer experience and, and opening mobility options for all, to all of life's opportunities for everyone, not just going back and forth to work. Is that what you're seeing there?
5: Yes, Paul. And, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think a good mobility system needs to be not just integrated, but inclusive. Inclusive in the sense that you expand the options and the commuters have are empowered by the choices, the options that they have. So land transport is very intricately interwoven with the land use planning process. So the urban design, uh, the whole development process, we have an interagency platform which works very closely. We have a concept plan of land use together with the other sectors going out 40 years, we look ahead. Every fifteen years, we do a midterm review, you know, and we go through various uh, scenarios, population scenarios, employment scenarios. Track the flight path, not just on a planning level, but on an execution level, right? We make sure that the land use is tightly coupled with transport. So whether it's TOD, you know, that's a practice here as well. I talked about integrated transport developments. That's a feature here, where we couple land use very closely. The timing of parcels that are coming up. Ah, uh, where are the population centres, you know, and we guide the infrastructure development to where the catchment is, and that's so important, right? Because that's where people uh, work and play, and 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 need to do and go about doing their daily business.
4: Thank you for listening to this special edition of Transit Unplugged in depth, with a selection of some of our favorite episodes from 2021. And next week is our special end-of-the-year episode at Transit Unplugged. Paul and I and a few special guests talk about what transit's going to look like in 2022 and what we think some of the hottest trends and advancements are going to be next year. Now, as always, if you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on Transit Unplugged, feel free to email us anytime at info at So until next week... Ride safe and ride happy.